This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It is Saturday, the 21st of October 2023, and we are talking about the minds today. We are looking at George Herbert Betts' theories about how the mind works, and we're thinking about how we can apply those theories to our own educational practice. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, that ended up being a bit of a longer break than I had originally intended. The last time that we had breakfast together was three weeks ago Um, because I had my teaching Saturday, which I knew was coming, and I told you all that I would see you in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, What I had forgotten was that the Saturday after that was one of my uni weekends, So if you are a new friend of the Saturday Breakfast Show, you might not know that I am currently studying for my doctorate in education with Reading University. And that involves three weekends per calendar year um, going to Reading for lectures. Uh, So we did one in February. We had one in, I think it was May, uh, may have been April. Um, And then there was one in... um, in September, October, a couple of weeks ago. And that had slipped my mind when I was planning out my shows. Uh, And of course, last Saturday was again, my teaching Saturday, because I work in an independent school, which means that we teach every second Saturday. So yeah, it's been about three weeks since we last had breakfast together, which um, as as you know, I am not a fan of. Um, I do enjoy being here with you every Saturday morning because I do like to talk about teaching. Um, I do it quite a lot, pretty much all day, every day, and I like to share that with with you, my audience. But what is a positive for me is that I am now on half term. I'm very, very sorry. I am one of those teachers that is on half term already. Um, And just to rub salt into the wound, because I work in in an independent school, I have two weeks for half term. So I've got this week and uh, this coming week and the following week off, which does mean that I can be here with you for lots of upcoming Saturdays um, to talk about teaching, which is always a good time for me. I haven't forgotten, though, that when we were last together, we were talking about cultivating good habits. We were talking about um, uh, work-life balance. And I told you that I was going to start keeping track of my use of time um, and that I would report back. I kind of tweaked how I was doing it slightly. Um, And what I've actually done, rather than tracking my dead time um, like I thought I was going to, so rather than tracking my doom scrolling, my random tweeting, whatever it might be, I've actually tracked my working time. 
Um, and this does not involve, um, you know, sitting in the staff room with a cup of coffee. It does not involve any time that I have taken a break. It is just literally the time that I have either been teaching or planning or um, marking or assessing, you know, any of the things that are involved in our job. Um, and within that time as well, I have also been tracking work that I have done that is not part of my directed time, but that we kind of have to do anyway. So I've been tracking the time that I spent doing revision sessions with my year 11s. I've been tracking the time that I have spent logging um, pastoral concerns, basically anything teaching related, anything job related, I have been logging. And what I have found is that consistently, every week since I started this, I have been working approximately one full work day on top of what I am contracted for. Um, so in my five day working weeks, I have been working six working days. Um, and in my six day working weeks, I have been working seven working days, which is quite eye opening, really. And, and this is where I have been consciously tracking my time. And so because I didn't want to overinflate my figures, I have been very um, diligent about making sure that I'm not wasting time. So I've been making sure that I have been marking as efficiently as possible, um, you know, not marking two books, then getting up and going and making a cup of coffee as a kind of distraction and counting that. I've tried to make sure that I've been as efficient, as machine-like as possible to get through everything that I need to get through. Um, and yeah, I am still working about 20% over the amount of time for which I get paid. Now, I am not saying this to complain. Um, I don't like to moan. I think there is already a lot of random moaning in our profession. Um, I understand that ours is, as I said before on the show, one of my favorite memes is that our job is one where you've got to do work outside of work so that you've got some work to do when you actually get to work. Um, and, and that is very true. That is very true. If you don't plan your lessons, you have nothing to teach when you get there. Um, if you don't mark your books, you have nothing to give back to the students when you get there. So, you know, I am conscious of all that. What The reason that I'm logging this is just as a, a snapshot, I suppose. I want to make sure that people who are going into the profession understand what they are going into, which is why I'm happy to talk about it on the show, so that anybody who is an ECT, that's an early careers teacher here in England, um, anybody who is a student teacher, anybody who is thinking about a career move into teaching, uh, so that you know what is coming. Um, and also just for my own posterity, because sometimes these things can seem so important. It seems like life or death, whether or not I give my year 11s a revision session every week. It seems vitally important that I log that two of the year threes have fallen out 
um, just in case that escalates. It seems the end of the world if I don't have written feedback ready to give my year nines the day after they've taken their test, you know, because you've gone to lunch when they've taken the test in the period before break and they've already said, have you marked it yet? There are all of these things that because we are on the ground, because we are at the front of the classroom, because we are dealing with our young people all of the time, they seem so important. And I will be interested to look back in five years, 10 years, can I go as many as 50? Probably not. Um, however many years it's going to be. And consider whether that was time worth spent or whether that will be one of my life regrets. Um, will I change any of my working patterns based on what I found so far? I don't know. I don't know because this has only been a small snapshot of three or four weeks in one of the busiest terms of the year. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to log the time as I've been logging it and I'm going to return to it in the summer. So I'm going to come back to it in July time and have a look at how I spent my time over the year and consider whether I think it was worth it. Um, and I think you know, looking at how my time averages out, that will be um, very, what's the word that I'm looking for? Indicative, indicative of whether my time is time well spent. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Just Stop Oil have spray-painted universities across England. The climate campaigners used orange paint to coat buildings at the universities of Leeds, Manchester and Cambridge, according to a report on the BBC News website. 
The latest protests came after other universities across the country were also targeted. Just Stop Oil say the protests are against the UK government's plans to licence new oil and gas projects. The BBC report featured comments from a spokesperson for University of Leeds, which said that whilst they support the right to legal protest, they were hugely disappointed that the results had been vandalism. At the University of Cambridge, a protester painted the neo-Gothic King's College orange and was confronted by members of the public. The majority of protesters have been arrested and charged with criminal damage. After the Tory party conference, attention turned to Labour's proposals for education should they be elected. Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Education Secretary, said a Labour government would upskill non-math specialists in primary schools to create the maths equivalent to phonics. The announcement marks a clear dividing line with Conservative policies, with Labour focused on the youngest school children, whilst Conservatives have focused on extending compulsory maths teaching to 18. The curriculum review would also be tasked with bringing maths to life and directing teachers to show children how numeracy is used in the world around them. The plans have been tentatively welcomed by the NAHT and General Secretary Paul Whiteman said it was vital that Labour builds upon the excellent maths teaching that is already taking place. Jeff Barton of Askell added, ensuring that primary schools have the funding for the resources they need was vital to improving attainment. After the distressing news of events unfolding in Israel, many news outlets have reported on government plans to support Jewish schools with extra security guards. Security and police patrols have already been increased, but the government has given £3 million in funding. Measures taken by some schools already include pupils being told to remove blazers and school trips being postponed. The BBC also reported that three schools have closed due to concerns. The Community Security Trust, CST, which provides protection for Jewish communities in the UK, said there had been 139 anti-Semitic incidents since the recent attacks on Israel. At this time last year, there had been only 21 incidents. A government spokesperson said it was very concerned a small number of Jewish faith schools had temporarily closed and that it would be working to support them to open safely. Finally, BBC Wales education correspondent Bethan Lewis writes that children as young as seven or eight are using social media, according to a major survey in Wales. Responses from more than 32,000 children aged seven to 11 suggest almost half use social media sites or apps a few times a week. Public health experts said the data was concerning as most social media carry minimum age recommendations of 13. Parents also responded with many saying they found it hard to strike the right balance between the benefits and pitfalls of smartphones. Full details of the survey can be found on the BBC Wales section of the news website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Now, I'm not a parent. Um, I, I have no intention of becoming a parent, so I can't speak authoritatively on this at all. And perhaps it's not my place to have an opinion, but I do have to wonder why a child of seven or eight years old needs a smartphone. Um, I understand perhaps them being given access to 
a parent or guardian smartphone if they want to play games, if they want to watch videos. Um, I understand that maybe older siblings might be giving them access to their phones um, without parental knowledge, but I can't help but question why a child that young might need a phone of their own that is then being unmonitored um, so they then have access to the social media that they shouldn't be signing up to. I think it's very easy for us to start demonizing the social media sites and saying, oh, they should be appropriate for children, they should be safe for children. But I think the the sites themselves in general are doing what they are supposed to do. They have minimum age uh, ranges in place. Whether or not we think 13 is is an appropriate age is a whole other discussion. But, you know, they have their own policies in place. And ultimately, we need to think about what we are doing as educators, what parents are doing as parents, to make sure that children are not accessing media that is too old for them. And I don't think that restricting the internet is the answer. I don't think that that censorship is the answer, as some have suggested. I think we need to address what is going on with these children that they feel like they need a phone when they are seven years old, because who are they talking to on their phone? Um, and we need to think about what other things they could be doing to entertain themselves that does not involve TikTok or Snapchat or any of that. Um, you know, where are the offline TV channels for children, for example? Um, you know, yes, I am suggesting replacing one screen with another, but it was all over the news the other day or the other week that um, CITV, that's, um, that was a, a children's channel here in the UK, and it was a programming block when I was younger. It was um, it was ITV's children's programming that ran after school. Um, that has ceased entirely on television now, uh, and it has moved to an online platform because young people are accessing their television online. And it becomes quite cyclical, doesn't it? Young people are accessing their TV online, so TV is moving online, so children need access to the internet to watch their TV, and so they are watching it online. And it just becomes this, this cycle of children being on the internet. And I think if we had more offline stuff for children, and yes, that includes television, but if we also made sure that we were giving good youth facilities in towns, if we made sure that town councils had enough money for youth clubs, for football teams, for hockey teams, whatever it might be, if we made sure that libraries were being properly funded and they were accessible to children, if we made sure that there were still arcades that children could go to where they could access games in ways that didn't have them being unmonitored on the internet, then that would go a long way to kind of solving a lot of these issues. I think often we blame social media and we blame the children for accessing media that is not appropriate for them. 
But if we actually look at what's going on, children are doing what children have always tried to do, and they're entertaining themselves, but they don't have the same options that we did when we were younger because of the defunding of services for young people. And young people know this, young people talk about this. Um, one of the things that we do in languages in school as part of the um, as part of the GCSE curriculum is we talk about um, children's hometowns. And, you know, we, we always tell them that what they tell us need not be true. It just needs to be good, accurate language to get them the marks. But without a doubt, one thing that all children will do is complain about the lack of stuff to do in their town. And I think that is a big piece of the what's going wrong with social media jigsaw. I think if we could put more money into providing stuff to do for young people, then this, their use of social media wouldn't go away, but it might become a less dominant part of their lives. But again, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a teacher. That is just how I see it. I've been reflecting recently on all the types of training that I've done across my career. So I'm now in year 16 of teaching and I've done a lot of CPD. I like CPD. So I have recently been going back through my notes that I've kept of my courses because I am also a notebook junkie. Um, so I do love a good notebook. And I, sadly, I actually quite like to display them. So I do like to get nice notebooks. I was always one of those people who didn't want to use a book because it was too nice to use. Uh, but I've kind of talked myself out of that now um, by using my notebooks and then putting my nice ones on display on my bookshelves and I quite like it when I look over my bookshelves I'm doing it now and I can't necessarily tell the difference between one of my notebooks with CPD notes in it and an actual book I think that's quite cool um, but again I'm very sad <laughs> but I've been flicking back through my books looking at the types of CPD that I've done um, and I'm quite pleased that I've done a range. I've done CPD on behaviour management back when I was an NQT. I've done CPD on subject teaching. I've done CPD for my subject knowledge. I've done all sorts. But one of the areas that I feel like I'm lacking, um, that I felt like I, I was lacking during my initial teacher training, so I have a B.Ed., so I have a degree in education, um, one of the things that I have not been able to find in any kind of um, in-practice CPD is how the mind actually works. How memory works, how things move from short-term to long-term memory. All this stuff that we know is important. I've had very little training in how it actually happens. I know all about social constructivism because I was trained as a social constructivist. So I know about 
um, knowledge being created rather than passed on. I know about knowledge being created in groups, all of that sort of thing, but I don't know how. I don't actually know how the brain works. I know more about de-escalating tensions between children. I know more about dealing with angry parents. I know more about um, ways to build relationships with defiant children than I do about how the brain works. And to me, that's a, an incorrect priority because I am a teacher. My, my interest, while I understand that the, the pastoral, the behavioral, the, the rapport, all of that is important, my interest is in knowledge. My, my priority is in making sure that my children can German, Mandarin, Latin, Japanese, the languages that I teach. And so it seemed to me that this lack of knowledge on my part about how the brain actually works is, um, is wrong. It's really bad that I don't know this. So I started to do some research and I came across this scholar, George Herbert Betts. Now he was an American teacher. Um, he taught religious education um, in the US during the early 20th century. So of course, what religious education, particularly in the US, but also in the UK, meant at that time was Christian education. It was teaching children how to be Christian. So I'm going to kind of caveat the next hour of the show by saying that it is based within a Christian education context. Some might consider it a Christian indoctrination context. And so if you don't agree with those kinds of contexts, then please do feel free to um, to stop listening at this point and go and, and do your own reading over the next hour. But the reason that I've been looking at um, George Herbert Betts' work is because he took psychology, he took the science of the brain, and he then applied what he had learnt to his teaching. And that's kind of what we need to do. We don't need to be neurobiologists as teachers. We don't need to understand the exact inner workings of the brain. We just need to understand the principles of it and then apply it to our own specific domains. Because of course, the teaching and learning of different subjects is different. The way that the brain takes on different information is different depending on the, the, the subject that we are teaching. So I like this idea of the transferability of his research. And again, this is something that we have been talking about um, on my doctoral course, this idea of transferability of research, transferability of knowledge. Um, and so that's kind of why I got into, uh, into Betz's work recently. So what we are going to do for the remainder of our time together, that's me in teacher mode, I always say that to my kids, what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes is, um, but what we're going to do is listen to some excerpts from Betz's uh, from one of Betts's books. He wrote quite a lot, but we're going to listen to some excerpts from The Mind and Its Education. Uh, and we're just going to kind of, 
I'm going to give you some space in which to think about how you can apply this to your own work with children. Because again, I am aware that not everybody who listens to the show is a teacher. I think most of my audience is. Um, but we have, so for example, Tim has just texted in, good morning to you. Um, yes, the sacred notebooks do get written in. The sacred notebooks do get written in because I have come to believe that they were made to be used. They were made to be written in. And I have come to the conclusion that I do them a disservice if I don't write in them. And they are beautiful and they can still be displayed even if they've got my scroll in them because nobody needs to open them and look at my awful handwriting. But they can fulfill their life's purpose of being used. And that's what I want for them at this point in my life. Um, but Tim is a, he's a children's literature specialist. He is a writer for children. Um, he writes some amazing work dealing with um, young people, young adults, and time, and the concept of time. And so, you know, knowing about memory, knowing about um, uh, knowing about the mind is important there because he can begin to think about, and, and any other writer who listens to the show can begin to think about how their work impacts the mind of the children, uh, the minds of the children reading it. Um, I know that we have some um, social workers who listen in, and so you can think about how what the children being, what the children in your care are consuming in lessons in, on social media, on television, whatever it might be, and how that is impacting their mind. The mind is really powerful. And we are all here because one way or another, we work with children in some capacity. And so I think it's good for us all, whether we are teachers or not, to consider the mind and to consider how we can apply some of these ideas to our own practice. And this is, of course, is not to say that we have to take everything George Herbert Betts says on board without being critical of it. He is a Victorian era writer. So there will be some things that have been um, disproven in the hundred odd years since, but that in itself is quite interesting to think about why people thought these things, where these ideas have come from. So I'm gonna stop rabbiting on now. And we are going to listen to the first chapter of um, Betts' book, The Mind and Its Education. And this section, this chapter is called The Mind or Consciousness. Chapter one of The Mind and Its Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Justice The Mind and Its Education by George Herbert Betts The Mind or Consciousness We are to study the mind and its education, but how? It is easy to understand how we may investigate the great world of material things about us, for we can see it, touch it, weigh it, or measure it. But how are we to discover the nature of the mind? or come to know the processes by which consciousness works. For mind is intangible. We cannot see it, feel it, taste it, or handle it. Mind belongs not to the realm of matter, which is known to the senses, 
but to the realm of spirit, which the senses can never grasp. And yet the mind can be known and studied as truly and as scientifically as can the world of matter. Let us first of all see how this can be done. 1. How mind is to be known. The personal character of consciousness. Mind can be observed and known, but each one can know directly only his own mind, and not another's. You and I may look into each other's face and there guess the meaning that lies back of the smile or frown or flash of the eye, and so read something of the mind's activity. But neither directly meets the other's mind. I may learn to recognize your features, know your voice, respond to the clasp of your hand, but the mind, the consciousness, which does your thinking and fills your joys and sorrows, I can never know completely. Indeed, I can never know your mind at all except through your bodily acts and expressions. Nor is there any way in which you can reveal your mind, your spiritual self, to me except through these means. It follows, therefore, that only you can ever know you, and only I can ever know I, in any first-hand and immediate way. Between your consciousness and mine, there exists a wide gap that cannot be bridged. Each of us lives apart. We are like ships that pass and hail each other in passing but do not touch. We may work together, live together, come to love or hate each other, and yet our inmost selves forever stand alone. They must live their own lives, think their own thoughts, and arrive at their own destiny. Introspection the only means of discovering nature of consciousness. What then is mine? What is the thing that we call consciousness? No mere definition can ever make it clearer than it is at this moment to each of us. The only way to know what mind is, is to look in upon our own consciousness and observe what is transpiring there. In the language of the psychologist, we must introspect. For one can never come to understand the nature of mind and its laws of working by listening to lectures or reading textbooks alone. There is no psychology in the text, but only in your living, flowing stream of thought and mind. True, the lecture in the book may tell us what to look for when we introspect and how to understand what we find, but the statements and descriptions about our minds must be verified by our own observation and experience before they become vital truth to us. How we introspect Introspection is something of an art. It has to be learned. Some master it easily, some with more difficulty, and some, it is to be feared, never become skilled in its use. In order to introspect, one must catch himself unaware, so to speak, in the very act of thinking, remembering, deciding, loving, hating, and all the rest. These fleeting phases of consciousness are ever on the wing. They never pause in their restless flight, and we must catch them as they go. This is not so easy as it appears. For the moment we turn to look in upon the mind, that moment consciousness changes. The thing we meant to examine is gone, and something else has taken its place. All that is left us, then, is to view the mental object while it is still fresh in the memory, or to catch it again when it returns. Studying Mental States of Others Through Expression Although I can meet only my own mind face to face, I am, nevertheless, under the necessity of judging your mental states and knowing what has taken place in your consciousness. For in order to work successfully with you, in order to teach you, understand you, control you or obey you, be your friend or enemy, or associate with you in any other way, I must know you. 
but the real you that I must know is hidden behind the physical mask that we call the body. I must therefore be able to understand your states of consciousness as they are reflected in your bodily expressions, your face, form, gesture, speech, the tone of voice, laughter and tears, the poise of attention, the droop of grief, the tenseness of anger and start of fear. All these tell the story of the mental state that lies behind the senses. These various expressions are the pictures on the screen by which your mind reveals itself to others. They are the language by which the inner self speaks to the world without. Learning to Interpret Expression If I would understand the workings of your mind, I must therefore learn to read the language of physical expression. I must study human nature and learn to observe others. I must apply the information found in the text to an interpretation of those about me. This study of others may be uncritical, as in the mere intelligent observation of those I meet, or it may be scientific, as when I conduct carefully planned psychological experiments. But in either case, it consists in judging the inner states of consciousness by their physical manifestations. The three methods by which mind may be studied are then, 1. Textbook description and explanation. 2. Introspection of my own conscious processes. And 3. Observation of others, either uncritical or scientific. 2. The nature of consciousness. Inner nature of the mind not revealed by introspection. We are not to be too greatly discouraged if, even by introspection, we cannot discover exactly what the mind is. No one knows what electricity is, though nearly everyone uses it in one form or another. We study the dynamo, the motor, and the conductors through which electricity manifests itself. We observe its effects in light, heat, mechanical power, and so learn the laws which govern its operations. But we are almost as far from understanding its true nature as were the ancients who knew nothing of its uses. The dynamo does not create the electricity but only furnishes the conditions which make it possible for electricity to manifest itself in doing the world's work. Likewise, the brain or nervous system does not create the mind, but it furnishes the machine through which the mind works. We may study the nervous system and learn something of the conditions and limitations under which the mind operates, but this is not studying the mind itself. As in the case of electricity, what we know about the mind we must learn through the activities in which it manifests itself. These we can know, for they are in the experience of all. It is, then, only by studying these processes of consciousness that we come to know the laws which govern the mind and its development. What it is that thinks and feels and wills in us is too hard a problem for us here. Indeed, has been too hard a problem for the philosophers through the ages. But the thinking and feeling and willing we can watch as they occur and hence come to know. Consciousness as a process or stream. In looking upon the mind, we must expect to discover, then not a thing, but a process. The thing forever eludes us, but the process is always present. Consciousness is like a stream which, so far as we are concerned with it in a psychological discussion, has its rise at the cradle and its end at the grave. It begins with the babe's first faint gropings after light in his new world as he enters it, and ends with the man's last blind gropings after light in his old world as he leaves it. The stream is very narrow at first, 
only as wide as the few sensations which come to the babe when it sees the light or hears the sound. It grows wider as the mind develops, and is at last measured by the grand sum total of life's experience. This mental stream is irresistible. No power outside of us can stop it while life lasts. We cannot stop it ourselves. When we try to stop thinking, the stream but changes its direction and flows on. While we wake and while we sleep, while we are unconscious under an anesthetic, even some sort of mental process continues. Sometimes the stream flows slowly, and our thoughts lag. We feel slow. Again the stream flows faster, and we are lively and our thoughts come with a rush. Or a fever seizes us and delirium comes on. Then the stream runs wildly onward, defying our control and a mad jargon of thoughts takes the place of our usual orderly array. In different persons, also, the mental stream moves at different rates, some minds being naturally slow-moving, and some naturally quick in their operations. Consciousness resembles a stream also in other particulars. A stream is an unbroken hole from its source to its mouth, and an observer stationed at one point cannot see all of it at once. He sees but the one little section which happens to be passing the station point at the time. The current may look much the same from moment to moment, but the component particles which constitute the stream are constantly changing. So it is with our thought. Its stream is continuous from birth till death, but we cannot see any considerable portion of it at one time. When we turn about quickly and look in upon our minds, we see but the little present moment. That of a few seconds ago is gone and will never return. The thought which occupied us a moment since can no more be recalled, just as it was. Then can the particles composing a stream be recollected and made to pass a given point in its course in precisely the same order in relation to one another as before. This means, then, that we can never have precisely the same mental state twice, that the thought of the moment cannot have the same associates that it had the first time that the thought of this moment will never be ours again, that all we can know of our minds at any one time is the part of the process present in consciousness at that moment. The Wave in the Stream of Consciousness The surface of our mental stream is not level, but is broken by a wave which stands above the rest, which is but another way of saying that some one thing is always more prominent in our thought than the rest. Only when we are in a sleepy reverie or not thinking about much of anything, does the stream approximate a level. At all other times, some one object occupies the highest point in our thought, to the more or less complete exclusion of other things which we might think about. A thousand and one objects are possible to our thought at any moment, but all except one thing occupy a secondary place, or are not present to our consciousness at all. They exist on the margin, or else are clear off the edge of consciousness while the one thing occupies the center. We may be reading a fascinating book late at night in a cold room. The charm of the writer, the beauty of the heroine, or the bravery of the hero, so occupies the mind that the weary eyes and chattering teeth are unnoticed. Consciousness is piled up in a high wave on the points of interest in the book, and the bodily sensations are for the moment on a much lower level. But let the book grow dull for a moment, and the makeup of the stream changes in a flash. Hero, heroine, or literary style no longer occupies the wave. They forfeit their place. The wave is taken by the bodily sensations, and we are conscious of the smarting eyes and shivering body.
while these in turn give way to the next object, which occupies the wave. Figures 1 through 3 illustrate these changes. Consciousness likened to a field. The consciousness of any moment has been less happily likened to a field, in the center of which there is an elevation higher than the surrounding level. This center is where consciousness is piled up on the object, which is, for the moment, foremost in our thought. The other objects of our consciousness are on the margin of the field for the time being, but any of them may the next moment claim the center and drive the former object to the margin, or it may drop entirely out of consciousness. This moment, a noble resolve may occupy the center of the field, while a troublesome tooth begets sensations of discomfort which linger dimly on the outskirts of our consciousness. But a shooting pain from the tooth or a random thought crossing the mind, and lo, the tooth holds sway, and the resolve dimly fades to the margin of our consciousness and is gone. The piling up of consciousness is attention. This figure is not so true as the one which likens our mind to a stream, with its ever onward current answering to the flow of our thought. But whichever figure we employ, the truth remains the same. Our mental energy is always piled up higher at one point than at others, either because our interest leads us or because the will dictates. The mind is withdrawn from the thousand and one things we might think about and directed to this one thing, which for the time occupies chief place. In other words, we attend, for this piling up of consciousness is nothing, after all, but attention. 3. Content of the Mental Stream We have seen that our mental life may be likened to a stream flowing now faster, now slower, ever shifting, never ceasing. We have yet to inquire what constitutes the material of the stream, or what is the stuff that makes up the current of our thought. What is the content of consciousness? The question cannot be fully answered at this point but a general notion can be gained which will be of service. Why we need minds Let us first of all ask what mind is for. Why do animals, including men, have minds? The biologists would say, in order that they may adapt themselves to their environment. Each individual, from mollusk to man, needs the amount and type of mind that serves to fit its possessor into its particular world of activity. Too little mind leaves the animal helpless in the struggle for existence. On the other hand, a mind far above its possessor's station would prove useless if not a handicap. A mollusk could not use the mind of a man. Content of consciousness determined by function. How much mind does man need? What range and type of consciousness will best serve to adjust us to our world of opportunity and responsibility? First of all, we must know our world. Hence, our mind must be capable of gathering knowledge. Second, we must be able to feel its values and respond to the great motives for action arising from the emotions. Third, we must have the power to exert self-compulsion, which is to say that we possess a will to control our acts. These three processes, knowing, feeling, and willing, we shall therefore expect to find making up the content of our mental stream. Let us proceed at once to test our conclusion by introspection. If we are sitting at our study table puzzling over a difficult problem in geometry, reasoning forms the wave in the stream of consciousness, the center of the field. It is the chief thing in our thinking. The fringe of our consciousness is made up of various sensations of the light from the lamp, the contact of our clothing, the sounds going on in the next room, some bit of memory seeking recognition a tramp thought which comes along, 
and a dozen other experiences not strong enough to occupy the center of the field. But instead of the study table and the problem, give us a bright fireside, an easy chair, and nothing to do. If we are aged, memories, images from out the past, will probably come thronging in and occupy the field to such extent that the fire burns low and the room grows cold, but still the forms from the past hold sway. If we are young, visions of the future may crowd everything else to the margin of the field, while the castles in Spain occupy the center. Our memories might also be accompanied by emotions, sorrow, love, anger, hate, envy, joy, and indeed these emotions may so completely occupy the field that the images themselves are for the time driven to the margin, and the mind is occupied with its sorrow, its love, or its joy. Once more, instead of the problem or the memories or the castles in Spain, give us the necessity of making some decision, great or small, where contending motives are pulling us now in this direction, now in that, so that the question finally has to be settled by a supreme effort summed up in the words, I will. This is the struggle of the will, which each one knows for himself. For who has not had a raging battle of motives occupy the center of the field, while all else, even the sense of time, place, and existence, gave way in the face of this conflict? This struggle continues until the decision is made, when suddenly all the stress and strain drop out, and other objects may again have place in consciousness. The Three Fundamental Phases of Consciousness Thus we see that if we could cut the stream of consciousness across, as we might cut a stream of water from bank to bank with a huge knife, and then look at the cutoff section, we should find very different constituents in the stream at different times. We should at one time find the mind manifesting itself in perceiving, remembering, imagining, discriminating, comparing, judging, reasoning, or the acts by which we gain our knowledge, and another in fearing, loving, hating, sorrowing, enjoying, or the acts of feeling, and still another in choosing, or the act of the will. These processes would make up the stream, or in other words, these are the acts which the mind performs in doing its work. We should never find a time when the stream consists of but one of the processes, or when all these modes of mental activity are not represented. They will be found in varying proportions, now more of knowing, now of feeling, and now of willing, but some of each is always present in our consciousness. The nature of these different elements in our mental stream, their relation to each other, and the manner in which they all work together in amazing perplexity, yet in perfect harmony, to produce the wonderful mind, will constitute the subject matter we shall consider together in the pages which follow. 4. Where Consciousness Resides I, the conscious self, dwell somewhere in this body, but where? When my fingertips touch the object I wish to examine, I seem to be in them. When the brain grows weary from overstudy, I seem to be in it. When the heart throbs, the breath comes quick, and the muscles grow tense from noble resolve or strong emotion, I seem to be in them all. When filled with the buoyant life of vigorous youth, every fiber and nerve is a tingle with health and enthusiasm. I live in every part of my marvelous body. Small wonder that the ancients located the soul at one time in the heart, at another in the pineal gland of the brain, and at another made it coextensive with the body. Consciousness works through the nervous system. 
Later science has taught that the mind resides in and works through the nervous system, which has its central office in the brain. And the reason why I seem to be in every part of my body is because the nervous system extends to every part, carrying messages of sight or sound or touch to the brain, and bearing in return orders for movements, which set the feet a-dancing or the fingers a-tingling. But more of this later. This partnership between mind and body is very close. Just how it happens that spirit may inhabit matter we may not know, but certain it is that they interact on each other. What will hinder the growth of one will handicap the other, and what favors the development of either will help both. The methods of their cooperation and the laws that govern their relationship will develop as our study goes on. 5. Problems in Observation and Introspection One should always keep in mind that psychology is essentially a laboratory science, and not a textbook subject. The laboratory material is to be found in ourselves and in those about us. While the text should be thoroughly mastered, its statement should always be verified by reference to one's own experience and observation of others. Especially should prospective teachers constantly correlate the lessons of the book with the observation of children at work in the school. The problems suggested for observation and introspection will, if mastered, do much to render practical and helpful the truths of psychology. 1. Think of your home as you last left it. Can you see vividly just how it looked, the color of the paint on the outside, with the familiar form of the roof and all? Can you recall the perfume in some old drawer, the taste of a favorite dish, the sound of a familiar voice and farewell? 2. What illustrations have you observed where the mental content of the moment seemed chiefly thinking, knowledge process, chiefly emotion, feeling process, chiefly choosing, or self-compulsion, will and process. 3. When you say that you remember a circumstance that occurred yesterday, how do you remember it? That is, do you see in your mind things just as they were, and hear again sounds which occurred, or feel again movements which you performed? Do you experience once more the emotions you then felt? 4. What forms of expression most commonly reveal thought? What reveal emotions? I.e., can you tell what a child is thinking about by the expression on his face? Can you tell whether he is angry, frightened, sorry, by his face? Is speech as necessary in expressing feeling as in expressing thought? 5. Try occasionally during the next 24 hours to turn quickly about mentally and see whether you can observe your thinking, feeling, or willing in the very act of taking place. 6. What becomes of our mind or consciousness while we are asleep? How are we able to wake up at a certain hour previously determined? Can a person have absolutely nothing in his mind? 7. Have you noticed any children especially adept in expression? Have you noticed any very backward? If so, in what form of expression in each case? 8. Have you observed any instances of expression which you were at a loss to interpret? Remember that expression includes every form of physical action, voice, speech, face, form, hand, etc. End of chapter 1
For me, the biggest takeaway there came quite early on where we heard about um, how you can never be in the same frame of mind. You can never be in the exact same frame of mind twice. And how many times have we encountered that with our young people? How many times have they come into our classroom and understood something one day, but then had no idea about it the next? How many times have they looked at you as if you have never taught them a concept before, despite the fact that they were fine with it the day before? And I think this idea that we are constantly changing as people, this idea that we are our minds, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, that, that we are in flux, that our minds are in flux, that everything is, is perpetually in flux. I think that's very important for us to keep in mind when dealing with our young people, because it can explain so much about our attempts to get them to retain knowledge and about the importance of revisiting formally taught concepts, revisiting formally learned concepts in order to really make sure that they've got to grips with it. And I think that, that all of us, no matter what our discipline, we can, we can take things from that idea. We can take this idea of interleaving previously taught concepts through our lessons to really make sure that they are embedded because we can never be in the same frame of mind twice. We can never be exactly the same person twice. But as teachers, we can make sure that every version of our children are taught these core concepts of our subject, of our lessons. Um, we're now going to turn our attention to the concept of attention. And uh, and we're going to see we're going to see what Betts had to say about the idea of paying attention, of keeping attention. Chapter two of the mind and its education by George Herbert Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Chapter two, attention. How do you rank in mental ability, and how effective are your mind's grasp and power? The answer that must be given to these questions will depend not more on your native endowment than on your skill in using attention. 1. Nature of Attention It is by attention that we gather and mass our mental energy upon the critical and important points in our thinking. In the last chapter we saw that consciousness is not distributed evenly over the whole field, but piled up now on this object of thought, now on that, in obedience to interest or necessity. The concentration of the mind's energy on one object of thought is attention. The nature of attention. Everyone knows what it is to attend, the story so fascinating that we cannot leave it, the critical points in a game, the interesting sermon or lecture, the sparkling conversation. All these compel our attention. So completely is our mind's energy centered on them and withdrawn from other things that we are scarcely aware of what is going on about us. We are also familiar with another kind of attention, for we all have read the dull story, watched the slow game, listened to the lecture or sermon that drags, and taken part in conversation that was a bore. We gave these things our attention, but only with effort. Our mind's energy seemed to center on anything rather than the matter in hand. A thousand objects from outside enticed us away, 
and it required the frequent mental jerk to bring us to the subject in hand. And when brought back to our thought problem, we felt the constant tug of mind to be free again. Normal consciousness always in a state of attention. But this very effort of the mind to free itself from one object of thought, that it may busy itself with another, is because attention is solicited by this other. Some object in our field of consciousness is always exerting an appeal for attention, and to attend to one thing is always to attend away from a multitude of other things upon which the thought might rest. We may therefore say that attention is constantly selecting in our stream of thought those aspects that are to receive emphasis and consideration. From moment to moment it determines the points at which our mental energy shall be centered. 2. The Effects of Attention Attention makes its object clear and definite. Whatever attention centers upon stands out sharp and clear in consciousness. Whether it be a bit of memory, an air castle, a sensation from an aching tooth, the reasoning on an algebraic formula, a choice which we are making, the setting of an emotion, whatever be the object to which we are attending, that object is illumined and made to stand out from its fellows as the one prominent thing in the mind's eye while the attention rests on it. It is like the one building which the searchlight picks out among a city full of buildings and lights up, while the remainder are left in the semi-light or in darkness. Attention measures mental efficiency. In a state of attention, the mind may be likened to the rays of the sun which have been passed through a burning glass. You may let all the rays which can pass through your window pane fall hour after hour upon the paper lying on your desk, and no marked effects follow but let the same amount of sunlight be passed through a lens and converged to a point the size of your pencil point, and the paper will at once burst into flame. What the diffused rays could not do in hours or in ages is now accomplished in seconds. Likewise, the mind, allowed to scatter over many objects, can accomplish but little. We may sit and dream away an hour or a day over a page or a problem without securing results. But let us call in our wits from their wool-gathering and buckle down to it with all our might, withdrawing our thoughts from everything else but this one thing, and concentrating our mind on it. More can now be accomplished in minutes than before in hours. Nay, things which could not be accomplished at all before now become possible. Again, the mind may be compared to a steam engine, which is constructed to run at a certain pressure of steam say 150 pounds to the square inch of boiler surface. Once I ran such an engine, and well I remember a morning during my early apprenticeship when the foreman called for power to run some of the lighter machinery while my steam gauge registered but 75 pounds. Surely I thought if 150 pounds will run all this machinery, 75 pounds should run half of it, so I opened the valve. But the powerful engine could do but little more than turn its own wheels, and refused to do the required work. Not until the pressure had risen above 100 pounds could the engine perform half the work which it could at 150 pounds. And so with our mind. If it is meant to do its best work under a certain degree of concentration, it cannot in a given time do half the work with half the attention. Further, there will be much which it cannot do at all unless working under full pressure. We shall not be overstating the case, if we say that as attention increases in arithmetical ratio, mental efficiency increases in geometrical ratio. It is in large measure a difference in the power of attention, which makes one man a master in thought and achievement, and another his humble follower. 
One often hears it said that genius is but the power of sustained attention, and this statement possesses a large element of truth. 3. How we attend. Someone has said that if our attention is properly trained, we should be able to look at the point of a cambric needle for half an hour without winking. But this is a false idea of attention. The ability to look at the point of a cambric needle for half an hour might indicate a very laudable power of concentration. But the process, instead of enlightening us concerning the point of the needle, would result in our passing into a hypnotic state. Voluntary attention to any one object can be sustained for but a brief time, a few seconds at best. It is essential that the object change, that we turn it over and over incessantly, and consider its various aspects and relations. Sustained voluntary attention is thus a repetition of successive efforts to bring back the object to the mind. Then the subject grows and develops. It is living, not dead. Attention of Relating Activity when we are attending strongly to one object of thought, it does not mean that consciousness sits staring vacantly at this one object, but rather that it uses it as a central core of thought and thinks into relation with this object the things which belong with it. In working out some mathematical solution, the central core is the principle upon which the solution is based, and concentration in this case consists in thinking the various conditions of the problem in relation to this underlying principle. In the accompanying diagram, figure 4, let A be the central core of some object of thought, say, a patch of cloud in a picture, and let A, B, C, D, etc. be the related facts, or the size, shape, color, etc. of the cloud. The arrows indicate the passing of our thoughts from cloud to related fact, or from fact to cloud, and from related fact to related fact. As long as these related facts lead back to the cloud each time, that long we are attending to the cloud and thinking about it. It is when our thought fails to go back that we wander in our attention. Then we leave A, B, C, D, etc., which are related to the cloud, and, flying off to X, Y, and Z, finally bring up heaven knows where. The Rhythms of Attention Attention works in rhythms. This is to say that it never maintains a constant level of concentration for any considerable length of time, but regularly ebbs and flows. The explanation of this rhythmic action would take us too far afield at this point. When we remember, however, our entire organism works within a great system of rhythms, hunger, thirst, sleep, fatigue, and many others, it is easy to see that the same law may apply to attention. The rhythms of attention vary greatly, the fluctuations often being only a few seconds apart for certain simple sensations and probably a much greater distance apart for the more complex process of thinking. The seeming variation in the sound of a distant waterfall, now loud and now faint, is caused by the rhythm of attention and easily allows us to measure the rhythm for this particular sensation. 4. Points of failure in attention. Lack of concentration. There are two chief types of inattention whose danger threatens every person. First, we may be thinking about the right things, but not thinking hard enough. We lack mental pressure. Outside thoughts, which have no relation to the subject in hand, may not trouble us much, but we do not attack our problem with vim. The current in our stream of consciousness is moving too slowly. We do not gather up all our mental forces and mass them on the subject before us in a way that means victory. Our thoughts may be sufficiently focused, but they fail to set fire. It is like focusing the sun's rays while an eclipse is on. They lack energy. 
they will not kindle the paper after they have passed through the lens. This kind of attention means mental dawdling. It means inefficiency. For the individual, it means defeat in life's battles. For the nation, it means mediocrity and stagnation. A college professor said to his faithful but poorly prepared class, Judging from your worn and tired appearance, young people, you are putting in twice too many hours on study. At this commendation, the class brightened up visibly. But, he continued, judging from your preparation, you do not study quite half hard enough. Happy is the student who, starting in on his lesson rested and fresh, can study with such concentration that an hour of steady application will leave him mentally exhausted and limp. That is one hour of triumph for him, no matter what else he may have accomplished or failed to accomplish during the time. He can afford an occasional pause for rest, for difficulties will melt rapidly away before him. He possesses one key to successful achievement. Mental wandering. Second, we may have good mental power and be able to think hard and efficiently on any one point, but lack the power to think in a straight line. Every stray thought that comes along is a will-o'-the-wisp to lead us away from the subject in hand and into lines of thought not relating to it. Who has not started in to think on some problem, and after a few moments been surprised to find himself miles away from the topic upon which he started? Or who has not read down a page and, turning to the next, found that he did not know a word on the preceding page, his thoughts having wandered away, his eyes only going through the process of reading? Instead of sticking to the A, B, C, D, etc. of our topic and relating them all up to A, thereby reaching a solution of the problem, we often jump at once to X, Y, Z and find ourselves far afield with all possibility of a solution gone. We may have brilliant thoughts about X, Y, Z, but they are not related to anything in particular, and so they pass from us and are gone, lost in oblivion because they are not attached to something permanent. Such a thinker is at the mercy of circumstances, following blindly the leadings of trains of thought which are his master instead of his servant, and which lead him anywhere or nowhere without let or hindrance from him. His consciousness moves rapidly enough and with enough force, but it is like a ship without a helm. Starting for the intellectual port A by way of A, B, C, D, he is mentally shipwrecked at last on the rocks X, Y, Z and never reaches harbor. Fortunate is he who can shut out intruding thoughts and think in a straight line. Even with mediocre ability, he may accomplish more by his thinking than the brilliant thinker who is constantly having his mental train wrecked by stray thoughts which slip in on his right of way. 5. Types of Attention The three types of attention. Attention may be secured in three ways. 1. It is demanded by some sudden or intense sensory stimulus or insistent idea, or two, it follows interest, or three, it is compelled by the will. If it comes in the first way, as from a thunderclap or a flash of light, or from the persistent attempt of some unsought idea to secure entrance into the mind, it is called involuntary attention. This form of attention is of so little importance comparatively in our mental life that we shall not discuss it further. If attention comes in the second way, following interest, it is called non-voluntary or spontaneous attention, if in the third, compelled by the will, voluntary or active attention. Non-voluntary attention has its motive in some object external to consciousness, or else follows a more or less uncontrolled current of thought which interests us. Voluntary attention is controlled from within. We decide what we shall attend to instead of letting interesting objects of thought determine it for us. 
Interest and Nonvoluntary Attention In nonvoluntary attention, the environment largely determines what we shall attend to. All that we have to do with directing this kind of attention is in developing certain lines of interest, and then the interesting things attract attention. The things we see and hear and touch and taste and smell, the things we like, the things we do and hope to do, these are the determining factors in our mental life, so long as we are giving non-voluntary attention. Our attention follows the beckoning of these things as the needle of the magnet. It is no effort to attend to them, but rather the effort would be to keep from attending to them. Who does not remember reading a story, perhaps a forbidden one, so interesting that when mother called up the stairs for us to come down to attend to some duty, we replied yes in a minute, then went on reading. We simply could not stop at that place. The minute lengthens into ten, and another call startles us. Yes, I'm coming. We turn just one more leaf and are lost again. At last comes a third call, in tones so imperative it cannot be longer ignored, and we lay the book down, but open to the place where we left off, and where we soon hope to begin further to unravel the delightful mystery. Was it an effort to attend to the reading? Ah, no. It took the combined force of our will and of mother's authority to drag the attention away. This is non-voluntary attention. Left to itself, then, attention simply obeys natural laws and follows the line of least resistance. By far, the larger portion of our attention is of this type. Thought often runs on hour after hour when we are not conscious of effort or struggle to compel us to cease thinking about this thing and begin thinking about that. Indeed, it may be doubted whether this is not the case with some persons for days at a time instead of hours. The things that present themselves to the mind are the things which occupy it. The character of the thought is determined by the character of our interests. It is this fact which makes it vitally necessary that our interests shall be broad and pure if our thoughts are to be of this type. It is not enough that we have the strength to drive from our minds a wrong or impure thought which seeks entrance. To stand guard as a policeman over our thoughts, to see that no unworthy one enters, requires too much time and energy. Our interests must be of such a nature as to lead us away from the field of unworthy thoughts if we are to be free from their tyranny. The Will and Voluntary Attention In voluntary attention, there is a conflict, either between the will and interest, or between the will and the mental inertia or laziness, which has to be overcome before we can think with any degree of concentration. Interest says, follow this line which is easy and attractive, or which requires but little effort. Follow the line of least resistance. Will says, quit that line of dalliance and ease, and takes this harder way which I direct. Cease the line of least resistance, and take the one of greatest resistance. When daydreams in castles in Spain attempt to lure you from your lessons, refuse to follow. Shut out these vagabond thoughts and stick to your task. When intellectual inertia deadens your thought and clogs your mental stream, throw it off and court forceful effort. If wrong or impure thoughts seek entrance to your mind, close and lock your mental doors to them. If thoughts of desire try to drive out thoughts of duty, be heroic and insist that thoughts of duty shall have right of way. In short, see that you are the master of your thinking, and do not let it always be directed without your consent by influences outside of yourself. It is just at this point that the strong will wins victory and the weak will breaks down. Between the ability to control one's thoughts and the inability to control them lies all the difference between right actions and wrong actions, between withstanding temptation and yielding to it, 
between an inefficient, purposeless life and a life of purpose and endeavor, between success and failure. For we act in accordance with those things which our thought rests upon. Suppose two lines of thought represented by A and B, respectively, lie before you. That A leads to a course of action difficult or unpleasant, but necessary to success or duty, and that B leads to a course of action easy or pleasant, but fatal to success or duty. Which course will you follow, the rugged path of duty or the easier one of pleasure? The answer depends almost wholly, if not entirely, on your power of attention. If your will is strong enough to pull your thoughts away from the fatal but attractive B and hold them resolutely on the less attractive A, then A will dictate your course of action, and you will respond to the call for endeavor, self-denial, and duty. But if your thoughts break away from the domination of your will and allow the beckoning of your interests alone, then B will dictate your course of action, and you will follow the leading of ease and pleasure. For our actions are finally and irrevocably dictated by the things we think about, not really different kinds of attention. It is not to be understood, however, from what has been said, that there are really different kinds of attention. All attention denotes an active or dynamic phase of consciousness. The difference is rather in the way we secure attention, whether it is demanded by sudden stimulus, coaxed from us by interesting objects of thought without effort on our part, or compelled by force of will to desert the more interesting and take the direction which we dictate. 6. Improving the power of attention. While attention is no doubt partly a natural gift, yet there is probably no power of the mind more susceptible to training than is attention. And with attention, as with every other power of body and mind, the secret of its development lies in its use. Stated briefly, the only way to train attention is by attending. No amount of theorizing or resolving can take the place of practice in the actual process of attending. Making different kinds of attention reinforce each other. A very close relationship and interdependence exists between non-voluntary and voluntary attention. It would be impossible to hold our attention by sheer force of will on objects which were forever devoid of interest. Likewise, the blind following of our interests and desires would finally lead to shipwreck in all our lives. Each kind of attention must support and reinforce the other. The lessons, the sermons, the lectures, and the books in which we are most interested, and hence to which we attend non-voluntarily and with the least effort and fatigue, are the ones out of which, other things being equal, we get the most and remember the best and longest. On the other hand, there are sometimes lessons and lectures and books, and many things besides, which are not intensely interesting, but which should be attended to nevertheless. It is at this point that the will must step in and take command. If it has not the strength to do this, it is in so far a weak will, and steps should be taken to develop it. We are to keep the faculty of effort alive in us by a little gratuitous exercise every day. We are to be systematically heroic to the little points of everyday life and experience. We are not to shrink from tasks because they are difficult or unpleasant. Then, when the test comes, we shall not find ourselves unnerved and untrained, but shall be able to stand in the evil day. The habit of attention. Finally, one of the chief things in training the attention is to form the habit of attending. This habit is to be formed only by attending whenever and wherever the proper thing to do is to attend, whether in work, in play, in making fishing flies, in preparing for an examination, in courting a sweetheart, in reading a book. 
The lesson or the sermon or the lecture may not be very interesting, but if they are to be attended to at all, our rule should be to attend to them completely and absolutely, not by fits and starts, now drifting away and now jerking ourselves back, but all the time. And furthermore, the ones who will deliberately do this will often find the dull and uninteresting task become more interesting. But if it never becomes interesting, he is at least forming a habit which will be invaluable to him through life. On the other hand, the one who fails to attend except when his interest is captured, who never exerts effort to compel attention, is forming a habit which will be the bane of his thinking until a stream of thought shall end. 7. Problems in Observation and Introspection 1. Which fatigues you more, to give attention of the non-voluntary type or the voluntary? Which can you maintain longer? Which is the more pleasant and agreeable to give? Under which can you accomplish more? What bearing have these facts on teaching? 2. Try to follow for one or two minutes the wave in your consciousness, and then describe the course taken by your attention. 3. Have you observed one class alert in attention and another lifeless and inattentive? Can you explain the causes lying back of this difference? Estimate the relative amount of work accomplished under the two conditions. 4. What distractions have you observed in the schoolroom tending to break up attention? 5. Have you seen pupils inattentive from lack of 1. Change 2. Pure air 3. Enthusiasm on the part of the teacher 4. Fatigue 5. Ill health 6. Have you noticed a difference in the habit of attention in different pupils? Have you noticed the same thing for whole schools or rooms? 7. Do you know of children too much given to daydreaming? Are you? 8. Have you seen a teacher wrap the desk for attention? What type of attention was secured? Does it pay? 9. Have you observed any instance in which pupils' lack of attention should be blamed on the teacher? If so, what was the fault? The remedy? 10. Visit a schoolroom or a recitation, and then write an account of the types and degrees of attention you observed. Try to explain the factors responsible for any failures in attention, and also those responsible for the good attention shown. End of chapter 2. Recording by Colleen McMahon. It's interesting, isn't it, this idea of attention and the different types of attention, because how many times have we heard a child say, oh, I struggle to pay attention. How many times have we come out of an inset and said, I find it really hard to concentrate? And how many times has the blame been set at the feet of the teacher, the instructor, where, you know, we are told, oh, your lesson wasn't interesting enough, your lesson wasn't stimulating enough, and therefore we can't blame the children for paying, for not paying attention. And if we go by what we've just heard, if we go by Betts's conclusions, then there is an extent to which this is true. And there is an extent to which we as the presenters, we as the teachers, have to hold the attention of our of our learners by providing them with things that are worth their attention. But as with anything, it's reciprocal. And we have to make sure that we have to encourage our learners to pay attention. We have to make sure that they understand the importance of the subject matter to their 
future, to their lives, to, to whatever it might be, so that they can make the choice to pay attention. And I think, you know, we have all seen frequently, this is laid at the feet of teachers once again too often, that, oh, your lesson was boring, oh, you didn't have them moving on quickly enough, which, of course, Betts did say was important, you know, moving from this to that very quickly so that you don't give the children time to lose focus, to lose their attention. But how often are children taught that they have a certain amount of control over the attention that they have? How often in study skills, in life skills, in whatever it might be, do we explain to children that they can control their attention span? They can choose to find something interesting, even if it's not. They can look for the nugget of relevance to their lives and focus on that. Versus how many times we tell them, oh, it's not your fault that you struggled to pay attention. That lesson wasn't very interesting. Oh, it's not your fault. The teacher shouldn't have expected you to sit and do a test for 30 whole minutes. I think once again, we quite often do our children a disservice by not explaining to them the power that they have over their own minds, the power of mindfulness, the power of being engrossed in choosing to be engaged in the lessons that they are taking. And instead, we quite often give them the easy way out. And we give ourselves the easy way out again in inset, in meetings, by saying, oh, that wasn't interesting enough, and so it's okay that attention wasn't being paid. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. I have really enjoyed exploring The Mind in Its Education by George Herbert Betts over the past couple of weeks um, in preparation for this show. Yes, it's a Victorian era book, 
Um, yes, it is written specifically for Christian education. But I do think that a lot of what Betts has to say continues to be relevant. I think a lot of the the ideas that it has piqued in me have been worth further exploration, perhaps with more contemporary texts. And I think sometimes we are quick to dismiss older pedagogy by saying, oh, you know, we've moved on, we understand the science better now, times have changed. But sometimes going back and and reading these old books, listening to these old books is a worthwhile endeavour because they can help us, they can give us at least a, um, a foundation in these subjects that maybe we have very little understanding of otherwise. So if you are interested in reading the book, once again, it's called The Mind and Its Education by George Herbert Betts. That's B-E-T-T-S. Um, it is currently um, public domain. So the audiobook uh, that we've taken excerpts from today, that is from LibriVox. And the um, textual book can be found in Project Gutenberg. Um, because, of course, it is public domain, it is freely accessible, freely available. If that is something that you wish to take up, that you wish to pick up on over the week. I will be back with you next Saturday um, for breakfast once again, and I am very much looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you wish to engage with any of the things that we have talked about, you can do so via Twitter, you can twat you can tweet me. I'm very sorry, you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. There we go. That's what I was trying to say. Uh, that's all one word, M-I-D-L-E-S-T-E-R. Um, I would be really interested in what you have to say about, um, about attention, about the mind, about the, the psychology of learning, because it all is so interesting. Thank you very much for paying attention to me this morning. I will look forward to having breakfast with you again next week. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.